This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Li Pingchen, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Meredith Schreig about her new book, Renegade Rhymes, Rap Music, Narrative, and Knowledge in Taiwan. This book is published by Chicago University Press in 2022. This book offers a close look at how Taiwanese musicians are using rap music as a creative way to explore and reconcile Taiwanese identity and history. Like many states emerging from oppressive political rule, Taiwan saw a cultural explosion in the late 1980s, when nearly four decades of martial law under the Chinese Nationalist Party ended. As members of a multicultural, multilingual society with a complex history of migration and colonization. Taiwanese people entered this moment of political transformation, eager to tell their stories and grapple with their identities. In Renegade Rhymes, ethnomusicologist Meredith Schweig shows how rap music has become a powerful tool in the post-authoritarian period for both exploring and producing new knowledge about the ethnic, cultural, and political history of Taiwan. Dreig draws on extensive ethnographic fieldwork, taking readers to concert venues, music video sets, themes of protest, and more, to show how early MCs from marginal ethnic groups infused rap music with important aspects of their own local languages, music, and narrative traditions. Aiming their critiques at the educational system and a neoliberal economy, new generations of rappers have used the art form to nurture associational bonds and rehearse rituals of democratic citizenship, making a new kind of sense out of their complicated present. This is a brief description about the book, and now let's hear from the author. Meredith, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's really delightful to be able to talk to you today. So uh, first of all, Meredith, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research interests and anything you would like us to know? Sure. Um, well, as you've said, um, I'm an ethnomusicologist. I'm, I'm an assistant professor of ethnomusicology at Emory University in Atlanta, um, and I'm also um, core faculty in the East Asian Studies program. 
Um, and my research, you know, for the past however many years I've been doing this, um, has focused for the most part on Sinophone popular musics. Um, and uh some of which are kind of transnationally circulating and have multiple homes. Um, but my, but my, my kind of primary um, area of interest is and has been um, for the last two decades plus uh, Taiwan. Um, so, um, so that's, that's really where I feel most at home uh, in my scholarship. Um, yeah, this is my, this is my first book. Um, and, um, you know, I published a couple of pieces related to it that work um, from uh, the qualitative data that I've been collecting over the course of the past, uh, it, it pains me to say this, but 12 years. Um, I've been working on this project for 12 years. Um, the first of which is an article called Hoklo Hip Hop, um, Resignifying Rap as Local Narrative Tradition in Taiwan that was published in China Pearl um, and is primarily about the activities of, of Hoklo language rappers uh, in Taiwan. And the second of which um, is called uh, Young Soldiers, One Day We Will Change Taiwan, Masculinity Politics and the Taiwan Rap Scene. And that was published in Ethnomusicology and that's about the gender politics um, in the scene. So um, yeah, so this, this project has been kind of my whole life <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that the journey so far is like 12 years. And now, uh, again, congratulations on your first book. Thank you. And um, so, uh, but uh, that's a flashback a little bit. Yeah. So 12 years. So how did you get started, especially, you know, Taiwan and also the rap music in Taiwan? Well, the story of how I got started in Taiwan is maybe maybe a longer one than, uh, than I need to tell today. Although I will say that... Um, you know, I, I had an interest in, in studying Mandarin um, beginning in high school. Um, I took a trip with my father to um, the People's Republic of China in the early 90s and just, you know, came away from that trip wanting to understand a lot more about the, re the region and its history and, um, and language and cultures. And, um, and so I went to college really prepared to begin um, to begin language study. And after my freshman year of, of college, went abroad to study in Beijing for the summer and afterwards thought, well, you know, while I'm in the area, maybe I'll go and see this, this guy that I'm dating <laughs> who's from, who happens <laughs> to be from Taiwan. And so I made a trip, not realizing at the time, very naive, not realizing at the time actually how difficult it was to get from mm. Beijing to Taipei. Um, I um, I made it happen and spent, you know, several weeks in Taiwan where I was really um, just, you know, delighted to learn actually that so much of the popular music that I was kind of growing interested in that I had started to, to listen to serious and take seriously um, during my summer in, in Beijing actually was from Taiwan. And so, um, you know, I, I, I really wanted to kind of understand what was that about? Um, <laughs> what's the story here? Uh, what is this place? And, and why don't I know anything about it? Um, and so I started to um, gear my under, undergraduate research projects towards um, Taiwanese popular musics and, you know, questions about Taiwanese identity, which 
this was the early 2000s. These were, you know, questions that were really, um, you know, we're still asking them in the scholarship, but they were, they were really new in the scholarship at that time, right? Um, what does it mean to sort of think of Taiwan as something in and of itself, right? And to and to really think critically about this idea of Taiwaneseness. And so, popular music for me seemed um, a really intuitive way, as a musician and as as someone who was studying music as well, um, it seemed a really intuitive way to engage with those questions. So, um, you know, fast forward a number of years, um, you know, I had developed a number of um, sort of diverse research interests within this world of Taiwanese popular music and, you know, um, began to, um, you know, undertake my my uh, fieldwork towards my dissertation. And I went into the field knowing not knowing exactly what I wanted to write about, actually, although I had done a great deal of thinking and preparation, mm-hmm. um, but with a sense that I was, I was really fascinated by the martial law period um, and the kind, and, and, and sorry, I shouldn't say fascinated by the martial law period, fascinated by the, the immediate post-martial law period mm-hmm. and trying to kind of understand how it was, um, you know, that, that Taiwan had just kind of exploded <laughs> with popular, began sort of exploding with popular music. Um, really, you know, really innovative, uh, original, moving um, music in that late 1980s, early 1990s period. Um, and I, I wanted to understand the relationship between the end of martial law and political liberalization and identity change with 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 music, um, beginning in that time, and so my my focus was on um, specifically. I had also been studying traditional narrative forms, um, storytelling musics, and my focus was kind of on. I thought, well, why don't I bring these two things together and, and really try to think a little bit about um, you know the the range of narrative musics that are present in Taiwan and have been historically, and what kinds of what kinds of stories uh, musicians are telling and how they, how they have changed um, through this period of political liberalization. And, um, and so my field work began um, just after, and I talk about this in the book, um, Typhoon Morakot, mm. which of course was um, absolutely catastrophic. My, my plane landed just a few days after the typhoon, Um, and, um, not a lot of time passed before I learned about a rap concert that was going on in the South of Taiwan in Tainan city, um, that was to raise money on behalf of victims of the typhoon. And so I decided I would travel South. I was, I was, I I was married to this man that I had gone to visit (laughs) in the early (laughs) thousands by this point, uh, and living with my in-laws in Taipei. And I, I made a trip South. Um, to Tainan to see this concert. And I think more or less immediately realized as I stepped into the concert venue um, that this was really kind of like the storytelling genre par excellence (laughs) of the moment. Um, And that I could, I could write, I I could write a lot about just what I was observing that day um, and hearing and seeing and feeling. And so that's kind of how the project got started um, with this interest in musical storytelling. 
and this desire to attend to what kind what kinds of stories are musicians telling and why. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, thank you, Meredith, for sharing with us your uh, academic interests and also personal connections uh, to the island. And especially, you mentioned this uh, interest in Taiwanese identity and also the transformation of Taiwanese identity and also the gender politics on the island as well, mm-hmm. um, especially in the post martial law period. Yeah. So uh, now, um, before we uh dig into the music landscape. So first of all, I would like to hear a little bit more about the uh, social historical context about Taiwan. You mentioned the martial law period and also the post-martial law period uh, a little bit earlier. So uh, can you introduce some of the historical context of Taiwan uh, that is central to your analysis of rap landscape in uh in Taiwan. I know this is very <laughs> difficult to put it in the five minutes answer, yeah. but I just want to give our audience some of the uh, historical context that you feel might be uh, very helpful uh, for them to understand your analysis. Yeah, I, I think this is actually one of the hardest questions to answer. <laughs> <laughs> in, five in five minutes. Five minutes or less. Um, yeah, because your answer is either like 30 seconds long and terribly abbreviated or just goes mm. for 45 minutes. Um, mm. and, and I say it's difficult because actually so much of, of Taiwan's history um, comes into play in, in my discussion of, um, of this repertoire, right? Um, mm. You know, there's a chapter on, his, you know, how historical narratives, right, long narratives of history um, you know, become a, a focus of a sort of small subset of songs by artists um, that are are really fascinating. Right. So, so much of this history um, kind of um, enters into this repertoire in one way or another, right? Or um, either it's being, um, either stories are being told about history or artists are exploring the ways that history has, has impinged on them, right? As individuals and as members of communities, and so, um, you know, all of that said, um, you know, the, the kind of immediate um, context, historical context for the book is, is as, as I've said, the, the immediate post-martial law period. And so Taiwan was, um, of course, under martial law from, for, for about close to four decades, right, between 1949 and 1987. Um, this one of the longest sort of continuous periods of martial law in the history of the world. Um, and, and during this period, Taiwan was essentially a one party, um, a one party state, right? So it was under, under the rule of, of the Kuomintang. Um, and, um, and, and during this period of time, um, there were a number of um, kind of um, policy decisions that had chilling effects on um, individual and community expression, um, and in particular on the use of non-Mandarin languages, right? There was the, the Mandarin-only policy um, for a period of time, um, state control of, of media channels, television and radio, um, and, um, and, this, and this kind of, of thing. Um, and so, um, you know, Rap music in Taiwan emerges in the immediate post, actually not in the, 
it, the first rap song, which I talk about in the book, is released two months before the official cessation of martial law. And of course, we have to understand that the end of martial law in 1987 isn't a hard stop. It's not like 1987 comes and martial law is over and everything changes immediately. Um, so, right. So the first, um, you know, what ends up being kind of talked about is, as one of the first local rap songs um, by Harlem U. Um that's Bagal Banjang, right? Um, yes, yes, sir. Um, is released um, just about two months before the official cessation of martial law. And the end of martial law, of course, isn't like a hard stop. It's not as though everything changes overnight, right? But there is this sort of gradual period of liberalization that follows and um, liberalization of media, um, which gives um, you know people access to, um, for example, you know, overseas, overseas cable channels that they had previously had to um, kind of, you know, hotwire or, um, or access through illegal channels. Um, and so, so the, the, you know, the context, this, this, this moment where martial law ends or this period of time where we transition out of martial law is, is probably the most um, sort of important context, right, for understanding how and and why rap music forms in the way that it does. But of course, earlier periods of history are also important here, right? Um, Taiwan, of course, is under the control of multiple colonial um, powers at different points in history um, and, um, you know, experiences different waves of language imperialism and cultural imperialism in addition to... um, you know, changeovers between different um, um, different uh, governments, right? So, so this history of colonialism um, and its effects on um, uh, pers- you know people's perceptions of themselves as from one place or another, right? Or as speaking one language or another, or comfortable in one vernacular or another, is also um, really important to understand here. Right, and then especially you mentioned there are this uh, history of serial colonization of the island, but also uh, through the nationalist regime and also the post uh, martial law period mm-hmm. and how the language, identity, cultural, and also the uh, community, the sense of community uh, transform through different uh, moments in these uh, different uh, history as well. Absolutely. Because, you know, at certain points under martial law, certain kinds of socialization are permitted and certain kinds of socialization is not permitted, right? Um, Mm. So I talk about this. I know we'll get into talking about the individual chapters, but the kind of all male um, associations, um, you know, that that sort of end up... uh, uh, serving as a model um, for mm. all male, more or less all male rap collectives um, are, you know, at points forbidden under martial law, right? Um, you know, gathering in <laughs> in closed spaces for for dancing or for musical performance mm. um, is discouraged or illegal at certain points under martial law, right? So that so the kinds of socialization um, that that um, that people have um, have access to. Uh, is is affected also by this by these these uh, these historical um, shifts, right? And then, especially as you mentioned, the this uh, kind of like uh, to 
dictate what kind of socialization is permitted or not. Even just people getting together for dancing, singing, Mm -hmm. and then uh, also on top of that, uh, deprive of freedom of speech, publication, so on and so forth during the uh, martial law period. And now after the lifting of the martial law, as you mentioned, and also analyze the book, this kind of explosion of culture. And also uh, partly, you know, we see in the music landscape as well. So uh, my second question for you, I know it's also a difficult one, uh, is to uh, give us maybe some of the description about the rap landscape in contemporary Taiwan, whether, you know, or the kind of like the audience or in terms of language or the music that they use or certain, uh, you know, artists, their work. So uh, just give us some of um, uh, even the very difficult question, yeah. but uh, some of the uh, things you would like to share with us about Taiwan's rap landscape. Do you mean in the present moment? Yes, in the present moment or in the uh, history as well. Yeah. So just kind of like this gradual introduction to, you know, rap music yeah. in Taiwan. Well, I'll, I'll start in the present moment. I think that's, um, that's a, I, I appreciate that inv- invitation, actually, because I usually end up starting with the history. Um, as I think so many of us who write about Taiwan in different <laughs> cultural spheres do, right? We're always talking about the past. Mm-hmm. Um but, um, but in terms of the present, you know, one of the things that makes writing about popular music really challenging is that popular music is always changing, right? So, um, you know, scenes never stop growing and transforming um, and changing their contours. And, um, and so, and, and the rap scene in Taiwan is not only not an exception to that general rule, but it's like, um, it's like a, a an, it, it proves emphatically <laughs> that that is true. And so mm. the scene, it's hard to kind of characterize the scene at present, but what I would say is that it's, it's really grown in the last, um, you know, five, five or six years. And, you know, I remember when I first started doing this, this research, I, I often heard, you know, around 2000, between 2009, 2011, I would do interviews with people and they would say, oh, you know, you're, you're a few years too late to do this project because the golden age was the early 2000s. And now things are kind of um, like the activity has waned. And I remember thinking that can't possibly be true. There's, there's a hip hop show like every night mm-hmm. <laughs> somewhere, mm-hmm. um, you know, that you're able to draw actually from my perspective, con- considerable audiences. Um, but now that we're in 2022, um, I mean, it, it, I don't think I ever could have predicted how, how big rap would get in Taiwan mm-hmm. um, or how many, um, how how successful it would be at making incursions into the mainstream of popular music um, for so much of its history, for so much of their history, rappers in Taiwan have have really labored um, to kind of get um, to get mainstream audiences to pay attention to. Uh, to their craft. And so, um, you know, at the, at the present moment, um, you know, you can find rap in, in any local language in Taiwan. There's, you know, there's Mandarin rap, there's Hoklo rap or Hlo, right? Um, sometimes called Taiyu. I always, I always refer to it 
um, using the language of my research associates. Um, and then the English spelling Hawklow, which I know sounds mm -hmm. funny. Um, but um, Hakka, and, and, and there's also, of course, rap in indigenous languages. Um, right. And so it's, you know, there's a great deal of language diversity present in, in the scene at this point. Um, and there are now acts that attract, they can fill arenas. Um, that wasn't the case 15 years ago, um, with the, with, with just a couple of exceptions, right? Um, you know, listeners of this podcast might be familiar with names like MC Hot Dog or, um, Blocky, um, mm -hmm. who, when I started the project was going by Dog G, um, and is now known as, as Blocky, D-W-A-G-I-E, um, <laughs> Uh, and, um, but, but, you know, now we have acts like MJ116, um, you know, 911, um, and, uh, they can fill stadiums. Um, so, you know, there are, there's not only, um, a great deal of, uh, a great more, uh, uh, there's a, not only a great deal of underground activity, um, but also, um, artists who have moved kind of into the mainstream of popular music. Um, mm. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a large scene. There's a lot going on. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with you that the uh, rap music, their growing popularities and also the con constant presence in the music industry as well. And as you mentioned from previously, it might be a sort of, to some degree, this kind of marginal mm -hmm. uh, group of artists, which, you know, usually maybe underground music or something like that. But now we see that their uh, presence in the uh, mainstream music yeah. and also collaboration yep. as well. Absolutely. And then also the kind of like uh, diversity, as you mentioned, in terms of the music, that uh, music tradition or the language uh, system that they use yeah. so uh, very diverse and then also uh, again their uh, presence is uh, everywhere yeah you know and, concert and yeah and also, variety shows yeah, absolutely <laughs> they're also you know kind of um, and they have been now for a number of years um, getting recognition in the forms of um, or validation mm. in the forms of of, of awards right from right. the popular music industry um, Thambao, right? Soft Lipa, Miss Ko, mm -hmm. um, Leo Wong, um, 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 who else? Poetic. Um, all of these artists have, have won Golden Melody Awards at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was a time when that was kind of an unthinkable, <laughs> an, un an unthinkable thing, um, for mm -hmm. a lot of rap artists. Um, I think I, I'd also like to mention, um, and, and this is sort of something that, um, you know, um, is particularly relevant um, when I reflect on on the book, and probably um, you know will seem um, obvious to to anyone who reads it. Um, but you know, one of the really kind of wonderful things um, from a research perspective about the rap scene in Taiwan is also how many talented amateur artists there are. Mm. Um, you know, in, in almost any global hip hop scene around the world, the vast majority of creative activity is undertaken by amateurs. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's always artists who become, or often, maybe not always, artists that become famous, right? Um, or whose recordings begin circulating um, nationally, if not regionally, if not internationally. Um, but still, the vast majority of, of musical activity is, is undertaken by interested amateurs. And this is this is really very much the case in Taiwan. And so, um, you know, a couple of years ago, they hatched plans for a local television show in Taiwan um, called... Um, Right. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember, I think it's just called the rappers in English. Um, and, um, you know, a little bit of a, of a response to um, the show in the, in the PRC. Um, right. Uh, and, and that of course itself was a version of a, of another show from South Korea. Um, but, but basically a televised competition, um, among rappers to find, you know, the newest and coolest talent. And, um, I can't remember how many artists off the top of my head entered that competition, but it was a huge number. And, um, and several of, of my research associates were involved in adjudicating and figuring out sort of how to process, um, the initial waves of applicants into that competition. And I just remember talking to a couple of them after they had come home from judging sessions and they were just exhausted. There were so many people who wanted to participate. Um, so, so that's another thing here, right, is that there's also this huge um, network of, um, of amateur musicians who are kind of, um, you know, trying to find ways to develop and hone their craft. Yeah, and then I definitely agree with you, especially in addition to those professional artists that received uh, general popularity, but also critical acclaims, all those awards in the industry. But also we have this uh, emerging groups of uh, mature artists, uh, this kind of musicians, and then they are in uh, TV competitions or they're in concerts or they're uh, uh, doing all those events and activity. And uh, so kind of like this is really uh, a popular and also a growing community. Yes, absolutely. And uh, with that, so we talk uh, about the two challenging questions. Uh, <laughs> I give you this hardball about, you know, uh, describe briefly about the uh, Taiwanese uh, historical context and also the rap uh, theme in Taiwan. So uh, I want to sort of, uh, again, focus on how everything got started mm-hmm. and especially how rap music appear in Taiwan. So earlier you were talking about the first song ever is uh, was released around two months before the lifting of yeah. the martial law period. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what that song is about and then um, who is the artist and then also why that song appear and released in Taiwan? Sure. Um, yeah, so, you know... Um, the question of how rap gets started is one of the sort of central preoccupations of the first part of the book, right? Um, where I end up tracing these various kinds of historical, different historical narratives. And so 
Right. So, so it'll depend who you ask um, what the first rap song is, but I think it's um, reasonably sort of safe to say for the, for the sake of simplicity that it's Harlem Yu's Bagalbanjang, um, right? Um, which in English is called by the name, Yes, Sir. And it's a song that, that plays with the kind of sonic similarities between military um military drills and um and early early rap music um in particular these kinds of um <clears throat> excuse me um really kind of square square rhythms uh and and use of end rhyme right um and uh and it's it's the um the title song of a, a kind of coming of age military film from Taiwan, right? That's about the experiences of conscripts um, serving in in the army, um, in the ROC's standing army, <clears throat> and so um, you know it it creates kind of from the outset um, a a tie between um, between rap music between. Um, Taiwan's kind of political situation and also between the experiences of men, right, who were, um, you know, who were the conscripts serving in the army. Um, and so, um, you know, so there's there's a history that begins with that song, but there's also kind of a prehistory as well that we can talk about. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and, uh, and, and that is, um, you know, before local language um, rap music starts to take off in Taiwan or, or starts, or rather before rap music starts to localize, um, you know, uh, hip hop culture comes into Taiwan primarily through dance, right? Um, and mm -hmm. so we have, you know, um, people who are um, getting wind of um, an emerging kind of hip hop dance culture in the United States that's traveling the pathways of global capitalism all over the world. Um, and films like Flashdance um, from the United States or Wild Style that do, do find their way overseas to Taiwan um, that showcase um, hip hop dancing as a kind of central, uh, you know, feature of, of hip hop culture. And so, um, videos from instructional videos, dance instructional videos end up making their way in to Taiwan from Japan um, and, and local dance scenes start to take off. So, so the popularity of dance kind of prefigures um, the, the popularity of local, local of, of, of rap music, right. With, um, with lyrics and um, local artists performing. Yeah, and then as you mentioned, there uh, the uh, the beginning of rap in Taiwan could have uh, different channels. As you mentioned, you just talk about the uh, which is believed to be the first song, yes, sir. But also, you know, through dance, the dance culture, and also through film, other different um, uh, media platforms, this elements of rap already can be found uh, in Taiwan, and um, so. Uh, but these things become more and more complicated as you analyzing your book, and you also uh, previously also hinted it, depending on who you ask, right? Who you ask, and then the history of music, uh, rap music, or the beginning 
of the rap scene in Taiwan might be different depending on、uh, who you ask or which community or which context that you are analyzing. And your book, you analyze three contexts. Can you tell us a little bit more about the three distinct but also overlapping history of rap? In Taiwan, yeah, yeah, I'm, I, I, I can, and, and,、um, you know, I'll, I'll say sort of as I reflect on the writing of the book that this was probably one of the hardest parts of the book to write、um, because I remember the first time I tried to write it, I tried to reconcile all of these histories into one history, and. It was just impossible. It couldn't. It couldn't be done.、Um, it was.、Um, it was. It was too thick, too dense, and too full of of contradictions,、um, you know, for it to make any sense. And so,、um, you know, what I do instead is to sort of speculate about three different overlapping histories that are all anchored by different glosses, right? Um, that are used for the word rap in Taiwan.、Um, so, you know, one of these, of course, is the term "shiha," right, which is a transliteration of the word "hip hop."、Um, and as I kind of cast it in、um, in the book,、um, "shiha," as "shiha," rap is kind of an ethos, right, an ethos with roots in Black and Latinx cultural practices. Um, that those who refer to rap as shiha emphasize sort of the formative influence of a composite hip hop culture that traveled to Taiwan from the United States、um, via television, radio, and record record imports、um, beginning in in the mid 1980s.、Um, so this is one way of understanding right rap as shiha.、Um, there's another.、Um, there are other sort of ways of understanding other glosses that are in use right. Um, another of which is is Rausha, right? Which which I kind of translate playfully as as rhapsodizing tongue, right?、Um, and and Rausha we can understand <clears throat> as you know、um, a musical technique, right? That demands verbal agility、uh, from its performers, right?、Um, those who perform Rausha don't actually have to be Um, part of a hip hop scene, right? They don't have to. You can do rausha as part of rock music. You can do rausha as part of as part of folk music, right?、Um, this kind of speech song、um, vocalization technique、uh, does not actually have to be hip hop, right?、Um, and then a third、uh, gloss, which is liangua、uh, or nianga in Mandarin, right?、Um, which we might translate as Songs with narration, right, or or、um, song reading, right, is another way of of、um, of translating it. And niangua、uh, is、um, uh, is a term that is used for、um, sung narrative traditions,、uh, basically in in Taiwan, right. So. <clears throat> Liangua and rap are different, and it's important to say this because、um, you'll always have musicologists who listen to rap artists refer to their work、uh, as liangua, and will say, "Well, no, they're not the same thing, right?"、Um, which I assure you, the artists know, <laughs> but、um, they're different in their kind of formal and functional particulars.、Um, but they share a kind of、um, storytelling ethos, right? This very sort of Fundamentally improvisatory nature, and also the use of speech song 
vocal techniques. Um, and, and rappers who, who refer to their art in this way are kind of capitalizing on these commonalities and, and repositioning this ostensibly for an art form as a logical extension or maybe even a continuation, right, of, of local cultural tradition. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, and then especially I think there's kind of three, um, I don't want to say different, but because it's like sort of like organic, dynamic uh, history as you analyze this first one as a formative influence, and then the second one as a, this kind of vocal technique, and the third one as this narrative tradition of storytelling that in a way that even though it seems that they focus on different elements, but somehow it also tells us the stories about globalization of the rap music and also localization as well, how this music is being um, practiced by local artists in terms of the technique or maybe in terms of the forms or maybe in terms of this kind of like fusion or this uh, combination of the local storytelling traditions as well. Absolutely. And, and, and they're also not mutually exclusive, right? So you can do, right. you can, you can do the Amgua as a part of Shiha, right? <laughs> you can make uh, the Amgua that is, that has a hip hop, um, that has features of hip hop and and that connects you to a hip hop scene. There are absolutely artists who do that, um, you know, and, um, and, and of course, Rausha is the, is the, the musical technique that, that anchors Shiha, right? So, um, so these, 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 um, these different kinds of trajectories are not, are not mutually exclusive. They're just ways of understanding all of the possible, um, all the possible ways of understanding the history and how far back it goes, right? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. And then especially I totally agree with you about these three uh, histories are not mutually exclusive. As you mentioned, you know, they could work hand in hand or they could actually in other music forms as well. Yep. So in other forms, they could be or, you know, they could also combine with each other's as well. And uh, definitely agree with you about how hip hop music in Taiwan can be unpacked through these different dimensions yes. and all this diverse uh, um, uh, conversion with each other yeah. um, as well. And, and just to add one more thing, um, you know, we haven't mentioned it very much, but um, but of course there are also Mandopop artists, right, who are not, mm. uh, you know, who maybe kind of capitalize or exploit um, hip hop aesthetics in their work, but are not strictly mm. speaking hip hop artists, right? They're not part mm. of a hip hop scene. Um, their work doesn't engage with the other elements of hip hop culture, for example, um, but we can also talk about the ways that that Shiha is present as an influence in Mandopop, right? An, a, an important influence in Mandopop. 
Right, right. And then, yes, uh, sometimes you see the uh, hip hop elements here and there that uh, in the mainstream music as well, right. even though they're not necessarily uh, incorporate or not necessarily practice the uh, rap music, right. but you do see the uh, the musical elements and sometimes is the styles Absolutely. about the design of the music or album or just how the artists present themselves in the mainstream uh, music you see of course elements of these uh rap music yes absolutely and that's something that predates um you know if there are listeners who are like oh well that all comes from k-pop um this absolutely predates um you know mm. the 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 korean wave in taiwan too i mean this goes back to the you know the the mid to late 1990s, right? With artists who mm. were sort of starting to, Mando pop artists like like David Tao, right? Who were starting to experiment with um, right. Black American musical aesthetics in their work. Um, and um, not just in their in the sounds, as you point out, but but in the kind of aesthetics of the perform of the whole performance, right? Um, right. And then uh, people like Wang Lee Holm in, in, in the late nineties, um, and early two thousands and J Joe and so on and so forth. Mm. Yeah. So it could be an inspiration for, or some of the athletic uh, reference in their music as well, even though they are not necessarily identify themselves as rap, um, artists per se, yeah. but again, there's kind of growing popularity and more and more presence of the rap music and elements in the uh, music industry. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, with that, so uh, one of the uh, aspects that you analyze of the rap music community in Taiwan is in terms of the gender dimension. Yeah. And then in one of your chapter, you were talking about this um, community is uh, dominated by male members. And then they also, in their music, in their practice, they are reimagining and also refashioning the traditional uh, Confucian gender uh, dynamics and also hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit more about how they do that? And then especially also, if this community is dominated by male uh, members, how do they uh, approach and also interact with uh, non-male members in the communities? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It was really one of the very first things that I, I perceived um, when I first began doing eth ethnography. Um, in this community, you know, I would walk into concert venues and, um, you know, you know, I'm, I'm a white woman. I, I, of course, you know, I'm aware of my own whiteness at all times, but, but I was really, really aware of my womanness. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, there would just be kind of, you know, throngs of, 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 of young men. Um, and so the male dominatedness of the scene was something that, um, really, um, stuck out to me from, from, from the very first, um, opportunities I had to, to observe the community in action, um, and ended up being, um, one of the most sort of fascinating questions to really trace through the research. Um, how did, how did this come to be? Why is this like this? And, um, and how do, how do artists feel about it? Right. Um, and so in the book, I talk, um, about, um, you know, how, um, and, and this, it's, there's a kind of, of nuance here, um, that, um, 
you know, I'm really careful to, um, I'm really, I, I try to be very nuanced in my, in my discussion of this. Um, but you know, when I talk to rappers about the, um, the kind of male dominatedness of the scene, um, you know, I want to make clear and I want to underscore here while I have the chance to kind of talk to people about the work, um, that, you know, when artists talk about when they sort of acknowledge that, yes, it is very male dominated and they try to, you know, explain why that's the case, they're not necessarily endorsing the male dominatedness of the scene, right? They're trying to explain it. And so the way that it was often explained to me, um, and I heard this language kind of repeated over and over again, is um, that artists would say that, well, rap rap is a very out outside form, uh, and women are very internal or inside. So they would talk about that. They would use this language of nay and why, right? Um, inside and outside. And um, in this language, of course, um, you can you can trace through a number of of different sources. It's it's a whole other conversation um, how this uh, how this language um, initially describes certain sort of ways of. Um, uh, describing the division of duties in in like the court <laughs> in the Chinese court and how it ends up becoming a way of of describing uh, how how maybe women and men or um, women identified people and 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 male identified people behave themselves in the rap scene. Um, but the language occurred to me as um, you know it was obviously very very a, a deeply sort of Confucian way of of describing things, right? that men are very outside and women are very inside. And so because, um, as the artist explained it to me, um, rap music um, was a very sort of external form, right? Meaning that it required people to be openly sort of aggressive with one another, that it required uh, a certain kind of fearless public performance, that it embraced, um, you know, ugly, ugly sounds and ugliness. Um, that they sort of rationalized that women had sort of self-selected out of the community because they weren't really interested in that kind of, in behaving in that kind of way, right? Um, and so um, this was really, I found this really fascinating, um, you know, and, and, and they would often offer as a kind of, you know, PS that, um, that of course, global hip hop, like rap scenes all over the world tend to be male dominated, which is true. Um, and that the Taiwan scene um, didn't necessarily differ um, from others in that way. Um, and that's an important acknowledgement to make. Um, but what was you know, really interesting was to see the ways that um, within what became these kinds of all male um, um, associations, right? the different sort of creative collectives that make up the rap community, um, clubs, university hip hop clubs, um, recording labels and such. Um, the ways that, you know, certain kinds of hierarchies um, also began to, to manifest um, these gen sort of gendered hierarchies. Um, you know, I would, I remember the first time um, I learned uh, began learning about um, the National Taiwan University Hip Hop Club, Hip Hop Research Society, I should say. Um, and, um, you know, rather than encountering a kind of ad hoc, um, you know, club <laughs> of, of young people who were interested in rap, 
I encountered a, a really structured student group, um, as you often find, right, with extracurricular groups in Taiwan with, you know, a president, a vice president, a treasurer, and so on, um, these kinds of ranked leadership positions. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it became fascinating to kind of think about the relationship between those gendered hierarchies and, um, and, and to think about the ways that they um, engendered a kind of um, male homosociality that was standing in for um, a, a kind of vanishing, um, vanishing coming of age rituals for men, right? Specifically as military service requirements were being rolled back. So I would have conversations with artists and they would say, oh, you know, I only, yeah, I, did, I barely did the military. I only served for X number of months or I did an alternative military service. You know, I, I did basic training, but then I worked in a national park or something. Um, and, um, and, and these kinds of relationships that they fostered through participation in the rap scene were a way of, um, of replacing um, those, those relationships that they might have formed with other men through military training. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's this, uh, sense of community mm -hmm. and then also but at the same time, it's a critical reflection, right? As you mentioned, yeah. it's not necessarily they endorse this male dominantness or only for male artists. That's not the whole, that's not the story. Yeah. Uh, instead, they are just, as you mentioned, you use the word collective, right? People get together, a sense of community, and then also uh, making music, but also trying to form network and bonds with each other. And it just happened that these are a male, tend to be male artists. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, um, really enterprising artists and politically engaged artists like Duagi, um, whose work I mm. talk about quite extensively in the book, um, also see, you know, these, the, the, um, the creative collectives, um, and clubs and things that form around and through, um, hip hop in Taiwan or rap in Taiwan as ways of, as pathways to kind of fostering political participation, right. Mm. Um, or encouraging democratic citizenship. So, um, you know, I talk, there's a, a vignette that I share that is about, um, you know, being on the set of a video shoot for a song, um, one day, uh, young soldiers, one day we will, we will change Taiwan, which was recorded, um, in advance of the municipal elections. I think it was in 2010. Um, and, you know, it was a really powerful image to see, you know, he had asked the, the members of different clubs from different hip hop clubs from different parts of the Island to come together for a day. And they all processed down, the street um, in the Nehu district of, of Taipei um, while a camera was positioned at the opposite end. So it would look like this crowd, right, was walking towards the camera with Duaki at the front. Uh, and, um, you know, it was, it was a really powerful visual, right, this kind of army of young men, right, um, um, walking in time to a song um, with lyrics about the importance of, of, of voting, right, in order to change Taiwan for the better. Um, so I think, you know, I think there are artists who see this as a way of encouraging, um, you know, democratic participation.
Mm-hmm. And this kind of a uh, political engagement as well mm-hmm. um, from every uh, um, every citizen, every individual. That you know, even through music, you can foster a political participation and also uh, uh, express your political vision of the island as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So with that, and then、um, we hear the,、uh, especially Duagi,、uh, not just making a music video, right? right? But there are certain message, and also this kind of like、uh, the making of a community for political participation.、Yeah. And now,、um, so I want to talk about the artists and musicians themselves. They are making songs, yes, but they are actually doing a lot of things in addition to that.、Right. As you mentioned earlier about this kind of、like、encouragement and also a fostering of collective political participation, but in your book you also mentioned that they are very active in the teaching、uh, dimension as well. They go out to teach,、uh, to participate in conference, and why not? So,、uh, can you tell us a little bit more about how the rep the communities, the artists, the members they are?、Um, The pedagogical activities and also collaboration with each other or with、uh, some of the non-music、uh, uh, groups as well. Yeah, I mean,、um, you know, this was one of my favorite memories.、Um, one of my favorite memories from from、um, the sort of early stages of fieldwork when I first met、uh, Lao Mo,、um, who is another sort of main character in the book、um, and and someone that I I think of as a good friend. Um, at this point,、uh, he's one one third of the group, the Tri Poets,、um, which is、um, uh, a historically really important group in、um, in in the development of of hip hop in Taiwan.、Uh, but I, we met for the first time at a McDonald's、um, just before the Lunar New Year, and、um, you know he was really busy and was getting ready to go home to to travel to his wife's.、Um, Uh, family's home the next day, but you know he was so excited to meet another graduate student at the time. He was a graduate student and and also interested in hip hop,、uh, and he was like, "Well, I you know I have to meet this woman,、um, you know who with whom I have this shared interest, right?"、Mm-hmm. And one of the first things he said was, "We have so many PhD rappers in Taiwan," <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and I was like. Um, cool.、Uh, that's great. You know, and、um, and so、um, you know, there is this. There's a close relationship between、um, rap music and higher ed、uh, in Taiwan. I mean, it's 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 a really pronounced thing, and it transcends. There's this kind of sub sub genre、um, distinction that is used. Uh, in Taiwan, for a certain subset of rappers who are known as academic rappers, right? For、um, not only for their association with kind of elite、um, uh, institutions of higher education, but also because of their sort of their erudition、um, in their in their music. But、um, but actually, like、uh, the the relationship between rap and、um, you know high schools and universities、uh, is 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 so much bigger than that. Um, and so,、um, you know, one of the things that I write about in in the book is this idea of of musical knowledge work, right?、Um, and、uh, and I use that as a kind of heuristic,、um, as a way of talking about,、um, you know, 
how it is that artists, many of whom um, have been the recipients of elite educations, right, uh, and who prepared for um, careers in the not the so-called knowledge work professions, right, um, mm-hmm. uh, that they actually end up, um, you know, turning away from those professions a little bit, um, not entirely, but a little bit. Uh, in order to undertake um, sort of service work to the rap community um, Mm -hmm. that is not particularly financially productive, right? Not in the way that traditional knowledge work jobs would be, right? Um, And so some of their activities entail teaching, for example, right? Teaching classes on how to rap, um, you know, or... um, um, participation in online forums, right? Um, uh, uh, judging competitions, uh, basically doing different different forms of mentorship, right? That are designed to encourage younger generations to accrue the skills that they need in order to become senior sort of members in the scene, right? Um, so, it's a, it's it's um it's quite a fascinating phenomenon i think um and you know the way i talk about it in the book um is as a way of really kind of trying to make sense of taiwan's accelerating neoliberalization right um you know that there are so many young people people from this generation um, of artists that I'm talking about. And the focus of the book, I, I don't think I've said this, but is really on what I call the senior, the senior membership in the scene. Mm-hmm. So people who were born between, you know, like the end of the 1970s, and I, I can't remember quite where I put the upper limit, but probably the early 1990s, right? Um, but most of them falling somewhere in the middle. Um, this generation that, you know, had grew up sort of experiencing um you know, the, the, the best, the best parts of the Taiwan economic miracle, right. And who were kind of sold this story, not unlike, I think what, what members of my generation in the United States experienced, right. Of infinite progress, right. And infinite, um, economic, um, development, right. And so, they, you know, they, they followed, (laughs) they followed everyone's instructions. They went to competitive high schools. They entered competitive college programs, not everyone, but many of them. Um, They, they did what they were supposed to only to graduate into a job market where, you know, they were making far less money than they needed to in order to, um, you know, live independently, have families, support families, um, and have rewarding workplace experiences. And so, you know, I think about this turn to musical knowledge work as a response to that, um, to that, to that experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then, um, PhD rappers and academic (laughs) rappers that in the very beginning, my sounds, um, um, not really common in our understanding or our um, uh, assumption about the academics and also uh, the musician. But I think, as you mentioned, and also analyzing this chapter, that uh, this production 
and also this continuation of music knowledge work.、Mm-hmm. And also, this is across generation、yep. as well. So this is not just an artistic pursuit. Want to make music,、uh, you know, hang out with、uh, the artists or so. But there's also the other side. They want to continue this、uh, history,、mm-hmm. continue the development through either academic work, but also through other different pedagogical activities、yeah. in teaching, in classroom setting, but. Again, also in community、yeah. service engagement, and also this kind of community、uh, bonding、mm-hmm. as well. So、uh, I think definitely、uh, to think about the、uh, the two、uh, dimension that it's not mutually exclusive,、right. but it actually can be uh, just uh, one goal, but just different dimension. To promote and continue the development of rap music in Taiwan, either in academic or in a community or in their own artistic pursuit as well.、Mm, absolutely. Yeah. So、uh, with this, and、uh, sounds like they are so busy, <laughs>、uh, community work, <laughs>、yeah. academic work, and also you know have a, a dissertation and papers to publish as well.、Mm-hmm. But、uh, with all these different kinds of effort to continue the rap. Music, the history,、uh, development in Taiwan. One of the、uh, dimension that you analyze here is their presentation or representation of Taiwan's past.、Yeah. And especially earlier, we talk about the、uh, martial law period, where there are very um, strong. Um, um, Censorship and also some of the、uh, dictation and assignment about what the national narrative should be、yeah. and could be in that period, but everything seemed to you know gone through this drastic transition in the post、uh, martial law period. So,、um, can you tell us a little bit about、um, some of the rap? Artists, their song, their practice, how they engage with the Taiwan's history, Taiwan's past, and how that engagement differs、uh, from those presentation in literature or film, or just、uh, what is being taught in school. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would actually love to begin in in, in the last part of the question, right?、Um, you know, how raps sort of way like how rappers' ways of telling histories differ from. Um, from other forms of historical narration, and you know, I think、um, to anyone who is familiar、um, with with rap music or hip hop culture, you know, one of its kind of defining features is that it's participatory, right?、Um, and it's participatory in multiple dimensions, right? You can become involved in a in a community the way we've been talking about. You can take classes. You can,、um, you know, and of course, it's there are. Maybe limits on its on participation,、um, depending on your background. As we've said now numerous times, the scene in Taiwan certainly favors,、um, and well, has historically favored kind of middle middle class men, <laughs> right?、Um, although there are some women who are active in the scene,、um, and middle class,、um, you know, Han ethnically Han men,、yeah. um, you know, indigenous.、Uh, Artists have sort of there are there are more and more of them, but they remain in many cases kind of on the periphery of the scene for a variety of reasons.、Um, but、um, 
but this, but, but hip hop is participatory, right? Um, if you go to a, to a rap show, um, you're going to be asked to vocalize back, right? Artists on stage is going to say, you know, hello and expect a response. Um, right, right. And, um, and expect you to, um, to affirm at points, right? Um, so this is part of the tradition. Um, this comes, comes into various forms of global hip hop through, um, through various Afro-diasporic and African-American musical traditions of call and response, right? And so, um, you know, I think one of the things that does make it a little bit different is that um, it, um, it involves, it, 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 it requests or um, it requests participation from audiences. Um, if, you know, we might even say it, it implores <laughs> participation. <laughs> and, and this is something that's really different from the kind of silent experience of reading a book, right? Um, mm. or, or going to a theater and seeing a film, right? That you are adjured to raise your fist and participate in the song uh, in, in the context of live performance. Um, so I think that's something, um, to note that, that distinguishes, um, rap, not only from, you know, other forms of, of popular music making, but also from, from, um, from, you know, representations of history and literature and film. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, uh, the part of this, that's about sort of also how rappers are responding to, or, um, or, or trying to disrupt um, the narratives that came to them through through school. I, one of the sort of central, I think, contradictions of this of the of the community that I perceived also from early on was its deep respect of teachers, right? And and many artists that I interviewed had one or two parents who were educators, right? Um, and who you know you know, maybe they, they aspired to become teachers themselves. So a a kind of deep respect for teaching, but also a deep skepticism (laughs) or cynicism Mm. about what they encountered in the course of their formal schooling. So a desire to kind of teach differently than how they were taught. Right. Mm. Um, And so, you know, in this, um, in this chapter, I think it's, the fifth chapter of the book, <laughs> the last chapter of the book. Yeah. Before the end, <laughs> um, you know, I talk about a corpus of songs um, that are about history and that look at different moments in history and think about the um, sort of subjective experiences of different individuals and communities during those historical moments. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I'm always careful to say this isn't the mainstream of, of hip hop in Taiwan, right? These are not like hit songs. Um, but there are enough of them that, um, that it really struck me as, um, as something, um, worth, worth examining, if that makes sense. Um, so, so the centerpiece of this chapter is what I refer to as a kind of hip hop syllabus. Um, and um, and I I use that language um, in order to help readers to uh, understand the the way that I think that the artists themselves intend the text to be received, right? Which is as teaching moments, right? As as mm-hmm. pedagogy, um, and 
And also, um, you know, in conversation with, as you referred to, these really longstanding national debates about the the national history curriculum, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, if you were born in Taiwan um, in the early 1980s, right, and experienced the last years of martial law, there you don't remember a time before people were talking about what is Taiwan's history and how should it be taught, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I tried to provide some, some context for why this is such an urgent task, why people care so much about history and the kinds of histories that come down to them through the formal, um, the formal channel of the classroom. Uh, and so the, there are three songs that I look at, one of which is by a Taipei-based um, quintet called Kaohsiung. Um, that's called Civil Revolt Part One, uh, and that thinks about the history of Taiwan during the Qing Dynasty, um, and and specifically um, kind of makes an argument that the experiences of um, of the people who who maybe did not at that point understand themselves as Taiwanese, right? I mean, this sort of predates this by by centuries, <laughs> this idea of Taiwanese-ness. But um, but the people who were living in Taiwan at that point, who are indigenous um, Hakka and Hakka people, um, that they um, you know were kind of incentivized to fight with one another um, by the mm-hmm. Qing government and. And it asks listeners to think about how these conflicts that go back, you know, um, hundreds of years uh, provide a kind of template for ongoing inter-ethnic strife, right? So they ask listeners to draw a through line between past and present. Um, The second piece that I look at is um, a song called Hey Kid um, by Zhang Ruichen. Um, which is about, um, I think it was the first song to try to give um, a kind of blow-by-blow encounter of the 228 incident. Mm. Um, and uh, and I should say also, John Chen is also a guest vocalist on, on Civil Revolt Part 1. So he appears in two of these songs. Um, and, and, you know, he is uh, uh, among sort of the elder statesmen of the rap community, um, of someone I think of as very teacherly <laughs> in, their, in their bearing. He is an elementary school teacher now, um, but mm-hmm. also has uh, university level training in, in teaching, um, in higher ed teaching. Um, and, um, and so Hey Kid is about the 228 incident and tries to kind of um, imagine telling a young child what the 228 incident was and what its consequences were for the present moment. And then the final song um, is KMT 1947, which is by a group called the Tiho Brothers, um, which, uh, you know, was a group that kind of came together to record an album. They, they didn't exist apart from this one album um, recorded on Taiwan colors music. uh, But but the piece is really interesting uh, and it's, it's in English actually. And it's about indigenous experiences of, um, of the KMT um, um, arrival in Taiwan 
and um, and and indigenous um, experiences of marginalization and violence, settler violence, um, through the period of martial law. Um, so you know, three different histories. At the last of which, um, you know, it is sort of the 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 first time in the book that we encounter artists that ask us to think explicitly outside of this framework of, um, you know, but sheng wai sheng, right? I mean, of course, it, there are indigenous voices throughout the book that come in in, in places, but but that say, um, you know, that, that ask us to really think about the historical framework as continuously marginalizing indigenous experience. Right, and then especially as you mentioned that these songs, they are, uh, to some degree, include this uh, teaching moment as well. Yes. That is to reclaim the history, for example, as you mentioned, the February 28 incident, yes. some of the indigenous experience that were actually marginalized, if not erased, by the nationalist Sinocentric narrative yep. of the island. And through this songs, through this music practices that uh, to sing the history of the island that is might be previously uh, undermined by the nationalist regime. And, and also to do it in languages that have been marginalized or right. suppressed, right? Um, you know, that was another um, sort of defining feature of, of my research over the years was um, watching artists grow in their knowledge of their mother tongues mm -hmm. through writing songs. Um, and right. so, you know, that some of the earliest conversations, some of the earliest to the latest <laughs> conversations I had with people um, were about, you know, at the very beginning feeling like, oh, God, you know, like my, 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 my Tao isn't good enough for me to know how to write this verse or I, you know, my grandfather speaks Hakka, but I, I never really learned it. I never learned, I was discouraged from speaking it in school and never, never had any uh, incentive to learn it. And so now I'm struggling through writing this verse, but I'm learning. Right. Um, so, so for them too, right. The, the process of writing these songs has been an education. They're teaching others right. that they are learning themselves. Yeah, I think totally agree with you. They, these are the teaching moments, but the artists and musicians, they are actually teaching themselves. Yeah. This self-education, this process to, get to know their culture, their language, and also their own past yeah. that is, uh, to some degree, denied in the nationalist formal education yes. in school. And now it's, uh, you know, the, um, the initiative to try to reclaim those language and uh, history as well. And it, absolutely. And just one more thing to add. <clears throat> I think it's also important to note that you know, their politics are not knee-jerk politics, right? <laughs> they're, mm, they're mm, excellent mm. critical thinkers. And so, right. you know, they are, um, of course, um, aware of and responding to, as you put it, um, these Sinocentric narratives promulgated by, by the nationalist regime. Um, but they're also, you know, they're, they're, they also maintain a healthy skepticism of, of DPP narratives, right, as well. <laughs> so they're, you know, they do, they do the best they can to apply critical thinking and to encourage critical thinking. Um, 
in in their listeners. And that's something that as a as a teacher myself, I I really um I was always really impressed by their uh openness and mm. their um their desire to like really look at evidence, right? Look at historical evidence and and make historical evidence. It's it's not easy to write a compelling song and a catchy song and a moving song that is also an evidence-based account of history. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but it's important to them and and I think they do a pretty remarkable job of it. Yeah, and I especially want to thank you for mentioning that, you know, their critical reflection, yeah. right? It's not just towards nationalist uh, regime, but also towards any kinds of political imposition Correct. and state control. Yeah. So I think this is very important because these artists, these um, musicians, they are thinking and then actually they are also, you know, in the communities doing reflectional work. Yeah. That not just for nationalists, but for any forms of impre- uh, um, oppression, state control, censorship, and everything. It could be come from state, or it could be coming from any kinds of the uh, mainstream music or something like that. Absolutely. So I appreciate you uh, definitely mentioned that it's not just the nationalist regime, but actually the critical reflection work could be uh, towards any kinds of control, imposition, and also uh, uh, censorship, and why not? Right. And uh, with that, we talk about the different chapters and also some of the highlights, some of the example that you analyze. And now I want to maybe ask you a question around the book. Sure. That is your role as the researcher that you uh, you mentioned you interviewed the research associates, these musicians, uh, members in the community, but also you interact with them uh, as well in the concert and also in the music video making and different uh, context. So uh, I would just uh, want to hear more about your experience and some of maybe the moments in your interview or in your interaction with the Taiwan's uh, rap community that you would like to share with us or any of the materials that you didn't get a chance to include in this book but want to share with us as well well that's thank you for making this invitation i think it's it's an ethnographer's dream (laughs) (laughs) get to talk about this stuff that didn't make it into the book a little bit um you know i think um I often say when I'm asked about this project, um, and I and I still, even though I've been talking about it for so many years, I still lack the language. Um, I feel so lucky to have um, to have to have come upon this community and and um, and to have been welcomed into conversation by so many really insightful artists, you know, innovative artists who, who are scholars of their own craft, you know? And, um, and so I, I feel this enormous, when I reflect on the experiences of doing the research, I, I, my, my feeling is overwhelmingly one of gratitude, um, and humility, um, you know, especially in, in, um, in the face of their expertise, um, of their own, of their, of their work, about their work. Um, but I think, yeah, one of the things I, I would just sort of share, uh, and I talk about this briefly in the introduction to the book, is how incredible it was to work with members of a musical community um, 
and, and with individuals, specific individuals who were kind of like proceeding through, um, proceeding along the same kind of professional pathway that I was. Um, you know, I think the language that I use in, in, in my writing is that this sort of furnished us with our greatest sort of sense of, of solidarity, right? That, that when I began doing this work, in some cases, there were artists that I was talking to who were also doing doctoral work. Um, they were getting ready to do field work. One of them, um, Teacher Lynn of the group, the Tri Poets, who is a really important conversation partner for, for me throughout this project, um, was I didn't meet him for a long time because he was a graduate student at the University of Pittsburgh in anthropology. And he was away doing his own field work in Fiji. <laughs> so, uh, um, you know, mm. I think a lot of times, you know, as an, you know, when you're an ethnographer, you go into interviews and you're really nervous. Will I, you know, will I be able to um, have the consent um, of the person that I'm talking to? Will they have an investment in my project? Will they understand what I want to do? Um, will I be able to explain it adequately? And, and I was just so fortunate to enter this, um, enter into conversations with partners who not only, um, you know, were enthusiastic about being part of the project, but like really understood what I was trying to do in terms of, of the academic piece of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in, in some cases we proceeded through, the dissertation writing and job application, um, early <laughs> faculty uh, uh, experiences, um, you know, in tandem with one another. Uh, and, and at the same time also were, you know, in some cases getting married, having children, um, and trying to balance all of those um, competing demands at once. And so, you know, this is something that I really, that I discuss extensively in the book, right? What it, what it means to try to grow up um, and, and to assume the, the responsibilities of an adult, right, um, in, <laughs> in a society. Um, and so I, I, I had those, I think, as a shared experiences in many ways with um, the artists that I was talking to. And so when I reflect back on some of my favorite moments that aren't present in the book, what I think of is, you know, I mean, this is, forgive me if I, if I turn any of our listeners green, but I remember my, my daughter, um, must've been two or three years old and we had just had a, a family meal, um, in, in one part of the city. And I was getting ready to go meet Lalmo, um, and his family in another part of the city. And, it was very hot and we got into a taxi and my daughter, of course, threw up in the taxi um, all over my poor husband. Uh, and I just remember texting, being able to text Lalmo and say, I'm so sorry, we're going to be late. Also, do you have any spare clothing? <laughs> uh. And, uh, you know, and arriving at his place and he had two children at that point and was a seasoned dad. And, um, you know, he came down to our taxi and, and, uh, and said, I got this, you go upstairs and, and take a shower. And, you know, just those, <laughs> those are the moments that of course they don't make it into the book, but like, mm-hmm. you know, when I met Mamo, he was just getting married. Um, you know, he was still a doctoral student and, um, 
and and here we were in this other time of life um experiencing parenthood and of young children together mm-hmm. uh and um and so that's something i think about and laugh about sort of to myself but um but it's part of doing it's part of growing the relationships that engender ethnography right um because right. relationships mm-hmm. are so much more extensive than anything that makes it into a text Right, and then especially hearing you say this kind of like process or journey of growing up as an individual, either scholars or、yeah. just individual that in different phases in our lives, but also growing up with the community、yeah. and also with the community members、right. as well, and then see in this different uh, the uh, chapters of this growing up the support that you guys have for each other.、Yeah. That is so amazing. That not necessarily, you know, become words printed out in the pages.、Yeah. But I do, but I do believe that readers,、uh, when they pick up this book, they can sort of sense that, as I do too,、mm-hmm. that you know, this is a community that support each other. Yeah. And then,、um, and then.、Um, In addition to academic work, but there's so much more about this book and around this book.、Yeah. And so, thank you very much for sharing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I for anyone who ends up going to a rap concert in Taiwan, you know, especially sort of a um, um, a more underground、um, you know concert, you're very likely to run into、um, you know an artist's mom or their kids or. <laughs> Yeah.、Um, yeah, the support is vast and it's deep.、Mm. Yeah.、Mm. Yeah, and then I think this definitely echo back to earlier. It's saying about this is a participatory,、yeah. right? This is not just in terms of the music form, but also in terms of the community.、Yeah. It's inviting and it's really open, and then、uh, want to include everyone as part of the community. Either you are just here for. You know、uh, the concert, or you are a researcher, or so. But you know this kind of welcoming is definitely、um, a part of the、uh, community as well. Yeah, I think that's. I think that is true. I think, I think that in the coming years, the community will continue to open more.、Um, mm. That there are.、Um, you know, I didn't. I didn't have a chance to answer your question about women and and.、Um, You know, non-binary people, LGBTQIA identified artists, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, non-cis het men. <laughs>、um, but、mm-hmm. um, you know, I think you know what I see in the coming years is is increasing openness、um, right. rather than increasing restriction as、um, as the scene continues to grow and as、um, yeah as as. As new sort of incursions are made into it um, um, from from people who had been on the margins before, right? And then、um, definitely, you know, looking forward to um, um, seeing all the development and as you mentioned, this、uh, further opening up of the community and this、uh, kind of how the community develop and evolve and growing as well.、Yeah. And、uh, with that, so、uh, now you finished your first book. Congratulations again!、Oh, thank you. And uh,、um, so, uh, what's your、uh, next project, or what you are、uh, working on right now that you would like to share with us? Well,、um, the project that I'm working on right now is going to sound like it's worlds apart <laughs> from this one. 
but I actually, I actually sense their connection and and plumbing their connection uh, as I begin sort of um, writing. Um, I'm working on a on a new book right now, a new book project, which is about Teresa Tang, um, mm-hmm. the Jean, right? Uh, and um, actually, in some ways, um, this. I call it a new project, but it's, it's a project that I've been working on intermittently for the better part of two decades. Um, I started doing research on Teresa Tang, uh, and, um, asking questions about her legacy, um, as an undergraduate. Um, and I was, I was an undergraduate from 99 to 03. She passed away in 95, uh, 95, I think it was 95. Um, there's too many dates in my head right now, uh, which was not in any case, not very long from, um, you know, not many years removed from her passing. <clears throat> and, um, and now, you know, we are uh, quite a bit further on in time. And, and, and so the project that I have been working on um, is about her legacy. Um, and it kind of has two dimensions to it, um, that I'm, I'm figuring out how I want to braid together right now. Um, the first of which thinks, um, is kind of ethnographic and looks at how, looks at her posthumous legacy, right? So, um, tribute performances, um, you know, some, some work has already been done and I've, I've been presenting at conferences for a number of years now on her holographic, um, the like hologram versions of her <laughs> that perform. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm interested also in, in other kinds of um, uh, narrativizations of her story. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, mini series and movies and, and stage musicals that, that purport to tell her story um, in, in various ways. And so that's one part of it. And the other part of it. Um, really takes a, a, a very, listens very closely to her voice um, and thinks about um, the ways in which her musical performances engendered certain particular kinds of expression that other uses of her voice, say in interviews, right? Or um, uh, in, in spoken forums, um, uh, maybe maybe didn't permit as easily. Um, so it's so it's looking at at vocality and um, narrative again through 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 her her work it, during her life and and after her passing. Right, and then especially this kind of like uh, Teresa Tan's uh, vocality, but also uh, her legacy mm-hmm. um, as well. Um, so I mean, she is very famous not just in Taiwan, yeah. but in the uh, different Sinophone uh, society as well. Yeah. So definitely thinking about you know uh, her influence, and also you mentioned that her performance still nowadays and how that they kind of digitalized yeah. uh, as well. Uh, it's definitely uh, sounds like great project, and then I look forward to uh, hear more about it, and then. Um, so uh, today, uh, Meredith, uh, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. I learned so much and enjoy our conversation a lot. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I also want to thank our audience for listening to the end. And I hope everyone is taking good care, staying safe, and I will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye.